an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. My name is Jack. <laughs> member of the Great Fact Group in Los Angeles. And I stand here before you fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> and I'm grateful for both. Uh, I want to thank the committee uh, for inviting us and, uh, and Rick and Linda for, for having us at their home. And it was wonderful. It's very nice. It's warm, friendly, and as he was saying, it's, you know, it's uh, just family you haven't exactly met yet. And so it's, it's uh, a great pleasure. Uh, and a pleasure to be in Nebraska, uh, although I don't smoke, eat meat, and I'm from Notre Dame. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting thing to me uh, that um, a great deal has been discovered about the disease of alcoholism since I got sober. I've been sober since June the 6th, 1971, and in 1972, the first genetic study was published, and it is uh, widely accepted throughout all of the medical community and so on that alcoholism is a physiological, pharmacological disease which is genetically transmitted. Uh, they haven't located the gene yet, but from a statistical point of view, it's very clear that fathers pass it on to their sons and women to their daughters. Not every son, not every daughter, but that does seem to be the case. And they, they've learned a, a lot of things. In 1939, when we published the book, we announced that alcoholics are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. And ever since then, science has been trying to figure out in exactly what ways we are bodily and mentally different. And they've got a number of them. One of our problems, an alcoholic of my type, doesn't uh, produce sufficient neurotransmitters to deal in a normal fashion with the various stimuli that we come across. Um, I'm lacking the ability to produce enough endorphins, which is a natural uh, sedative relating to uh, fear and pain and things of that sort, you know. And interestingly enough, alcohol in non-alcoholics too creates endorphins. Now, since I'm lacking in them, you know, it was uh, I drank for medicinal reasons, you see, uh, and. And a lot of interesting things about the neurotransmitting stuff. Um, also, uh, another neurotransmitter, which has a name I just love. I'd love to know who chose the name. It's called dopamine. And, uh, and cocaine produces dopamine in the human system. So if you're lacking it, you know, there, there's ways to go. And people don't who are non-alcoholic never fully comprehend that thing. They, they can't help it uh, but to misconstrue in some ways how those things affect us. They, they get the impression that when I drink, I feel, you know, ecstatic, rhapsodic, and all that. And the truth is, whenever I drank or used, what I got from it was I felt normal. I felt like they do. And, and, of course, the problem is, you, uh, in my case, certainly, uh, I wanted to feel more normal than anybody. <laughs> I, I wasn't able to, to curtail much of my imbibing of anything, ever. 
still. <laughs> but uh, now it is not booze and dope. It's the, it's the internet and stuff like that. Uh, but it's so so they found some physiological examples to uh, model the alcoholic. And and another of those facts is that when I drink alcohol, my body produces a chemical which isn't normal in the human body, and it's called tetradihydroisoquinoline. Go ahead. <laughs> Sometimes called THIQ. <laughs> and tetradehydroisoquinoline is stored in the brain and never excreted. I drank for 25 years manufacturing and storing THIQ in my body. Now, what the significance for me of that is the observable fact that doesn't matter how long. Uh, one of us stays away from booze or dope, if we go back to it, we are not only like we were, we're worse. Because, you know, for 25 years I manufactured and stored THIQ. So there's a reservoir up there somewhere in my brain sloshing around waiting for another drink, you know. And when I drink, and, it, and that THIQ mixes in my brain, strange things happen. I will stop off in a quiet little bar for a little glass of wine and know that I've got to be home for dinner uh, in an hour. And I'll have another wine, another wine, pretty soon I'll be getting to feel normal. And I drink some more, drink some more, and then the THAQ. And all of a sudden, I pick some guy about the size of Dennis and say, what the hell are you looking at? <laughs> I didn't intend that at all. That's not why I went there. I went for a quiet kind of meditative uh, experience, you know. Or the uh, same thing, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just drop in for a real quick, I'm thirsty, I'll just have a beer, and five hours later I say, let's go to Tijuana, what do you say, guys? And it, it's, it is what happens to me, and I, I have, there's, I used to hear when I got into the program people saying, I can't predict my behavior. I could. Uh, I know, I know, if I drink. I'm going to fight and go to jail. That's what's going to happen. It always did. Why would it change? I mean, that's just the way it always was. So I, my behavior was very predictable, you know, just unbelievable. So the THIQ, the endorphins, the neurotransmitters, we do in fact normally experience pain in a more direct and intense way than the non-alcoholic, which explains all that whining and crying in our meetings, you see. <laughs> oh, I'm suffering. And, uh, and so, there is a true physiological basis for my alcoholism. And psychologically, we react in a different way, too. There's a wonderful psychiatrist in New York named Stanley Gitlin who is specialized in people like us. And, one, and I actually got the opportunity one time to talk to him about this specific uh, comment that he makes. But he has characterized uh, response to stimuli in three ways. He said there is the normal response. You know, if it's something's coming at you, you get out of the way. And if it was close, you feel bad for a little while. And there are people who don't respond quite as uh, appropriately as they should, who 
who don't recognize the fear or the danger or the whatever the, the feeling. And then there are us. And he refers to us as stimulation augmenters. Uh, because it's just always more. It's more. I'm more frightened, more lonely, more excited, more ecstatic, you know. And, and I live in Redondo Beach. And uh, when I was drinking, you know, if, if the Pacific Ocean were Jack Daniels, I would worry about evaporation. You know, man. I was like... Uh, um, there's a, there's a fellow our way, Ken Devaney, who says uh, the glass wasn't half full or half empty. It just wasn't big enough. You know? And that's, that's the way that is. So I am a stimulation augmenter just by nature. So physiologically, my disease was transmitted to me probably through my Irish heritage. And my family is rife with alcoholism. And and I have a disease, and, and that's the fact. And once I get that clear, it gets a lot easier to deal with the problem. Of course, I didn't know that for a long time, and I was behaving alcoholically long before I got to booze. Uh, I am, and you probably recall from the big book, I have another characteristic that's fairly common among people of our time. <laughs> I, I am relatively devious by nature. I don't approach things real directly. And uh, I was born in a, a mile and a half from the Notre Dame Golden Dome. And uh, my father, my father's, my mother's father had uh, helped to paint the Golden Dome to gild it. And it was a big, you know, family thing around, centered around that university. And we lived a, a block or two from the church. And we were very... Um, you know, church-going kind of family. My father was a drunk. And I knew that when I was about four years old. And I was the oldest of five children, and I thought it was my job to control his alcoholism because I was the oldest. And I did the best I could. But by the time I was 14, it was clear to me that I was, I was a failure at doing that. I had been totally unsuccessful. Even though I had pried his fingers from around my mother's throat, I had wrapped his fist in a towel when he severed an artery, putting it through the kitchen window. I kicked him out of my bed when I was nine years old, but I couldn't, couldn't handle him. So I decided to run away from home without anybody knowing that I was doing it. And if you're Irish Catholic in South Bend, Indiana, there is no more socially acceptable way to leave home than to go study to be a priest at Notre Dame. So at 14, I did that. And I got out there, and I was there for two and a half years. Twenty hours of silence a day from the ages of 14 through 16, trying not to think about girls. <laughs> Finally, I said, what an order. I can't go through with that. <laughs> and I came home. And the next day, I, I was 16 years old. It was in May. I walked down. Uh, to the park where I knew some of the guys would be. And uh, as I walked down that street, I was small, shy, inhibited, academic. I was top of the class as long as I could remember. Uh, and I got down there, and I had a few beers with these guys, and I experienced a personality change. Somewhere in the evening, I suddenly became hostile and aggressive, and I, I managed to 
take my shoe and shatter the windshield of one of those kids' cars, and uh, it took three three guys to subdue old five, six, and 120, because I was just trying to kill somebody, you know. They did subdue me, they got me in the car, two guys sat in the back seat and held me to the floor with their feet, and the third guy drove me home. And on the way home, I experienced another personality change. I just became warm and wonderful, and I, and I cried and I threw up on his floor. And they got me in my house and they helped me out of the car and they helped me up the front steps and they leaned me against the front door of my house like a thing and pushed the doorbell and ran because they didn't want to deal with my father. And my father opened the door and here was his oldest son, 16 ex-seminarian by one day, drunk. And he did the only thing he knew how to do. He punched me out. And that was my first night of serious drinking. And I loved it, man, <laughs> I loved it. I never skipped a drink for the next 25 years. I was just off and gone. And if you have alcoholism of that type, the chances are very good you're gonna live that Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. And I lived in interesting times. Uh, by the time, six months after I started drinking, I had my first arrest and it was for manslaughter. I was 17. I had won a scholarship to the university on an academic competitive kind of thing. And instead of going to college, it looked like I was going to go to jail. And uh, what actually happened is the Irish Mafia kind of moved in and there was a uh, deputy sheriff who probably needed an Al-Anon meeting who, uh, who distorted the facts of the case. I was drunk, I, was, I had tried to cross a highway in the middle of traffic and a, and a man who was my age as I stand here, plastered himself all over my car and died. He was riding a motor scooter. And uh, one of the things I've noticed just recently is that uh, I now know what that 17-year-old took away from him, you know, because I'm his age now. And I know what pleasure life is and my grandchildren and all that, and my alcoholism killed him. Ours is the only disease I am aware of that kills people that don't have the disease. And mine did that that day. And uh, so because of uh, Sheriff Billy Fox's uh, management, I didn't even go to trial. The coroner's inquest decided it wasn't a chargeable case and they dropped it. And so instead of going to jail, I went to college. And I was so relieved and grateful that I got very drunk that night. And uh, it just went on from there. And it had, it just kept doing that. I can repeat it endlessly. It just went on and on and on and on, living in interesting times. And uh, so I proceeded to try and find some sort of solution. And I didn't and couldn't, and it just went on endlessly. Uh, I, <laughs> And I was listening to Dennis talk about uh, being in the military. I, I fought the Korean War in Carmel, California. You know, it was really difficult. I was, uh, uh, I jived and connived my way into a, a job as a mental health consultation service. I had added some chemicals to my recipe by that time. I was doing a good deal more than booze and dope. I was doing all kinds of stuff and I was, uh, counseling neurotics. Um, and actually, I had done pretty well. I, and 
Fort, at uh, Fort Sam Houston. Uh, I'd been trained and I was 72 people in the class and I graduated number two. I knew some of that stuff. Uh, if your problem was anything but alcoholism, I was of some use to you, really. If you had to be an alcoholic, I probably wasn't much help. People would say to me, you know, I, I'm afraid, I, I'm, I think I might be drinking too much. I'd say, well, how much do you drink? And they'd tell me, and I'd say, oh, don't worry about it. Hell, I drink more than that, you know. And I'm the therapist. You say, yeah, don't worry, man. So it just went on and got worse and worse. And so then I, I escaped from the Army uh, by lying. I told them I, I wanted to get a master's degree. I didn't want to get a master's degree. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So I got out three months early and went to New York and enrolled at Columbia University. And I was going to be an actor. And, uh, and I was still looking for some kind of a solution. And I moved down to Greenwich Village looking for a good woman. That's where all the good women were in Greenwich <laughs> Village, you know. And... Uh, and got into a little rooming house and I happened to notice a woman that lived at the other end of the hall and she had a little three-year-old girl by a previous marriage and one of the things I noticed is that she was a good mother and God knows I needed a good mother <laughs> so I allowed her to parent the two of us you know Kathy the three-year-old and Jack the three-year-old and and so she began to do that and, and mothered the both of us and uh, and uh, and it just went on. It just went on and on and on. And uh, Jean um, diagnosed my situation and, and figured that my problem was that I needed more responsibility. And so she's a very determined woman. She had six miscarriages and then our first boy and then two girls after that. And so then I had four children and lots of responsibility. And I discovered that responsibility makes me nervous, and when I get nervous, I drink, you see. So it didn't help, it made it worse. And then she decided my problem was my profession, so she convinced me to get out of acting. And, I, and you know, I'm pretty compliant when I'm trying not to lose my livelihood, you see. And so she said, uh, you know, you gotta, you got to get a real job. And that was in May and September, I was a high school teacher, you know. So fine, I'll do that. So then I went out to New Rochelle, New York, and I was teaching uh, theater at New Rochelle High School, which has a, a population of 2,600 kids, and I was easily the favorite teacher there, uh, especially among one set. I was dealing dope to them. You know, but, and, and at the end of three years, I, I got fired, and it was not because of my drinking habits or my behavior or my stuff with the dope. Uh, the only reason I got fired is that a lot of the symptoms of my disease had begun to develop, among them defiance and rebellion. I don't, I don't like to do the rules. I just, I can't do that. And uh, so they had a simple thing. At the end of three years, if you wanted tenure, you had to have a master's degree. In order to obtain that, I would have needed to go to one class for one semester. I mean, once a week. And I said, no, why, why would I do that? I don't need it. You know, it's just one of your rules. I don't forget that. If you want to keep me, change the rules. And the Board of Education of New Rochelle decided to my amazement not to change the rule, <laughs> not to make an exception. And, I, and well, the community really got up and honest because I had done some rather extravagant productions there. We did the, production of Brigadoon, which got uh, the 
Decca Records did an album of it. I mean, we, you know, so I brought a lot of stuff to school and I thought I had power. And uh, the New Standard Star, New Rochelle newspaper, ran a banner headline editorial attacking the board's decision to let me go. And the kids picketed the school. And the Parent Teacher Association did a, a petition of all of the people. And the board decided to stick to the rules and fired my ass. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that. I they lost that war, man. And so I was off and running again, you know, and, and then I decided the, the real problem was I had all this responsibility. I just couldn't hack it. So I decided to escape in my typical direct fashion. I got a job in Ohio and uh, I set it up so that I would go out there and, you know, get the job started and find a house for us. And, and what I was really doing, just like when I ran away from home, I was running away from home without anybody knowing I was doing it. I was never going to tell Gene and the kids that, that this was goodbye forever. I got on the plane and uh, I got out there and for the first time, I was 33 at the time, uh, I, 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 I was unsupervised. My drinking was unsupervised. It was no longer parents or the army or the school or, or my wife. I mean, and uh, of course, with the lid just blew off in 30 days, I was in lots of trouble. And uh, so I called my wife and, and I'd never have had any trouble managing her, you know. I called her and I said the three words that I knew she responds to instantaneously. I called her and I said, I need you. And she has an unreasonable need to be needed, you know. So she came out. She packed up the four kids and the suitcases and got on a train and got the dog on the train and she came out to California, I mean to, to Ohio to, to take care of me. <laughs> and uh, man, I was delighted. I had found this great house that we could rent, had rooms for everybody and it was, we could afford it. And, and typical extravagant Irish alcoholic fashion, I put flowers in every room of the house, you know, and left very early so that I couldn't possibly be late. I left in time that I could even stop for lunch at the Milano Club. And, uh, yeah, that's right. So I, I had a little drink before the meal everybody does. It settles your stomach, you know, and then there was another guy and he, he bought a drink for me and then I bought one from him and another guy came and, and he bought a round and then it was my turn and before you know it, I forgot to meet my family. I mean, I intended to be there, and and it was suddenly I said, "What time is it?" He said, "Well, it's it's 2:30." What? Oh my God! And I got the car and race broke every traffic law I could find and got to this train station. It was empty. Somebody who had known me through the theater had had met the family and taken them to the house. So then I raced across the house the, uh, the, 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 to the house across the town, and I got there and Jean was standing at the door and she. Uh, I said, you know, this urgent business matter arose and I just couldn't manage to get there. I'm really sorry. And she said, I understand. And I knew she knew and she knew I knew she knew, but we didn't know what else to do. We just lied to each other and kept on going. And uh, the end of two years after, the first play I did broke the 33-year house record of that theater, and each play I did after that broke my own record, and at the end of two years, they fired me. 
Um, they decided on a little less success, a little more peace and quiet. And uh, also they wanted somebody they could trust alone in a room with their wives. And that was not me, you know. So they, they kicked me out and I got a better job. I got a better job. I became professor at a university and head of the department, just 15 miles away from the first last job. And, and that was great. The only problem there is it was a Methodist university and they didn't believe in drinking. And uh, <laughs> well, I didn't know what we're going to do with that. And so, but I wanted that job and oh man, I really worked at it. I, I, I did everything I possibly could and I was quite successful in the first year. Uh, I instituted a couple of new programs that began to get some national attention for that university, but my arrogance, my defiance, and my rebellion continued to grow, and at the beginning of the second year, in spite of the fact that I needed that job desperately, the civil rights movement did not pass me by. I organized 26 kids on campus. I was the co-founder and only white member of the Black Student Union. And I was urging those kids to blow up the administration <laughs> So they fired my ass. You know, so, so then we came out to California and started trying to get find some solution. I was desperately trying to find out what is the matter with me. And I couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. And it was amazing to me. I was hallucinating by then and delusional. There are those in the in the room who have experienced both and know the difference. Uh, but I was both hallucinatory and delusional, and, and I wasn't working anymore. I couldn't really work anymore. And, and you'll hear Jean later this afternoon. She described me as a hippie by then, and 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 I describe myself as a functioning alcoholic. But see, my definition of functioning alcoholic was somebody that's married to somebody that does work. <laughs> so, and she was working, God bless her. So that went on for, for three years and it just got worse and worse. And, and by then I had been arrested uh, nine other times for a variety of charges, none of which were DWI, none, zero. Uh, I was arrested for inciting a riot for contributing to the delinquency of a minor variety of charges. Never once, uh, you know, drunk driving or anything like that. And the last arrest, it's the only one I have ever objected to, and I'm still not convinced that it was entirely fair. I explained it to my first sponsor, and, uh, and he wasn't all that sympathetic, and my, my current sponsor is a, a retired appellate court judge, and he doesn't offer much sympathy to me on this either, so I'm going to try you. <laughs> See, let me explain what happened, okay? All that happened is, I don't think they had probable cause. That's, this is my objection. All that maybe you could help me on this, sir. All that happened is that my extreme caution while driving drew the attention of the heat to me that night. And, and there was reason for caution in my case. I had totaled 12 cars by then, you know. So what happened is I sat through three green lights waiting for the right one, you know. I just, I just couldn't get the right shade of green. And, and that drew the attention of the heat to me and, and they pulled me over and discovered to nobody's surprise that I was drunk. I, I measured 2.7 that night, thank you and spent the night in the sheriff's station at San Vicente in, in West Hollywood and 
They gave me a kick out at 5.30 a.m. and I called my wife of 17 years and we had one of our typical conversations. I said, where the hell were you when I needed you? Where were you? And she said, I was there. I tried to bail you out, but they wouldn't let me. Stay where you are and I'll come get you. And I said, don't bother, I'll walk. And I hung up on her. To this day, I'm not sure why I called her. I think just to make her feel bad. <laughs> and I walked home, stumbled and staggered and stopped on the way to get well. And when I got, when I got there, she was going to work. She was standing there in the front door blocking my entrance to my house. And she said the kids were right. I never should have let you back. Now she was referring to a little incident that had occurred a couple of nights before when my four children, the oldest was 20 and the youngest was seven, had gotten together in my living room and told me one at a time that they did not love me, want me, or need me. And they told me to get the hell out of their lives and to leave their mother alone, I was killing them. And I grabbed that suitcase they had packed for me. This was many years before the invention of intervention, but those kids, you know, and I grabbed that suitcase and marched out of that house feeling lonely, separate, different, angry and afraid, which is the way I felt my entire life. And I did the only thing I ever knew how to do. And when I was drunk enough, I broke into my car so that I'd have a place to sleep. And I called her the next morning and begged her like a child to take me back again and she didn't know any better so she did. And, uh, and so that was the, the, that day and then I nursed myself through that day, you know, carefully and measuring out the quantities of beer and dope that I would use until she got home and, and cooked supper. I'm no fool, I waited till after supper and then picked up and uh, stole the keys from, from her purse and $10. And, now, when I met her in Greenwich Village, Jean was a fun-loving, easy-going, friendly kind of a girl. You know, she used to go to all the jazz joints with me, and it was great. And uh, over the 17 years that we had been together, her attitude had deteriorated considerably. I mean, she was no fun at all. I mean, not just with me. She was angry at everybody, the mailman, everybody. And she began to do say hurtful things, you know, and I'm very sensitive. And, and she'd say things like, I have five children, he's the oldest. Oh, man, that's embarrassing. And, and she'd do these mean-spirited little practical jokes. Like one of the things she used to do is, uh, I used to drop in occasionally at a little beer barn in Jay Sloan's, and she began to forward my mail there. Oh, man. You walk in and the bartender says there's mail for you. Oh, so anyway, I, I stole the keys and ten dollars and I went over to Jay Sloan's to see if there was any mail, you know, and and uh, I found a little girl about the age of my oldest daughter who was a good deal more sympathetic to me than my wife had ever been. And she and I closed the bar and by the direction we were taking, apparently we were going back to my house. <laughs> uh, I think I was going to introduce my wife to her replacement. Fortunately, I got arrested that night or I would be dead now. <laughs> no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So there she was and that's what she was referring to and here I was and she said, uh, uh, I'm going to have the papers filed today. If you're not out by noon, I'll have you ejected 
and she left. And I had developed a number of survival skills necessary for an alcoholic of my type. I mean, if you you got my mouth and my size, you better know when to duck and run. And uh, and I've gotten pretty good at being able to tell when they mean it. And she meant it. I knew that she meant. I've been out of that house about a hundred times. We figure in, in and out. I've been locked out, stormed out, snuck out, escaped, you know, but this time I knew it was really over and I stood there feeling lonely, separate, different, angry and afraid. So I reached under the kitchen sink and got a bottle of white wine I had stored there for emergencies and I drank the wine and smoked the dope. I had a little left, not much. I rolled the skinniest little J you ever saw. I mean, I licked the baggie, waste not one, not. My mother taught me. Smoked the dope, drank the wine, passed out on the bed. Nothing new, nothing new. And on the way to work for the first time ever in her association with me, it occurred to Jean that I, uh, she got a different idea. And she got up to work and she grabbed the phone book and looked up in the yellow pages, alcoholism, and she made a phone call and she came back home and found me lying there on the bed, not bothering anybody, you know. And she tried to get me awake. It wasn't easy in those days to get me conscious. And by the time she did, she was crying. Now I've seen her cry many times in pain, fear, rage, humiliation, hatred. I know she hated me that night in front of those four kids when she tried to put a knife in my belly, and I did not object. I stood there and said, go ahead, do it, do it, do it. You would be doing us both a favor, do it. But she couldn't, she just stood there and cried. So she was crying that day and I woke up and I didn't know what the tears were. I know now that those were tears of compassion that as she got me awake, it dawned on her that I was dying of a disease that I never chose to have. So she blurted out what they told her to say. She said, Jack, you're sick. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> Man, you've been through the three days I've been through, you'd be sick too. I've been doing weed speed and booze for three days. I just got out of the drunk tank. I was the littlest guy in the damn thing. I had to sleep on the floor. Of course I'm sick. And she said, let me get you help. I didn't ask her what kind. Who cares? I needed help to sit up. And she said, I'll, I'm going to make a phone call. And she started out, and I kind of shuffled after her, and she handed me the phone. She said, this guy wants to talk to you. It surprised both of us. <laughs> and I grabbed the phone, and this guy said, hi, my name is Bud. I'm an alcoholic. Can I help you? Don't talk to me like that. <laughs> I don't want your patronizing, self-righteous attitude, okay? Just leave me alone. And I heard myself say to him, maybe you could. Don't know where that came from. He said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Don't tell me what to do. I can't follow your rules. I run red lights for drill, you know what I'm saying? Don't tell me what to do. And he said, don't use, don't drink, and come see me. And I said, okay, I don't know why I did that. I said, where exactly are you? And he said, Oxnard. Now, you know, when we got this call asking us to come to Nebraska, it never, no, I never bothered, wouldn't even think about it. So how far is that? Who cares? But then I said to him, Oxnard? <laughs> Man, that's a 70-mile drive for me. How the hell do you expect me to get there? And he said, drive. <laughs> Smart ass, you know. <laughs> he did not understand my problem. <laughs> I had just agreed not to use or drink, and if I don't use or drink for the length of time it takes me to get to Oxnard, 
neurological events occur. Uh, sudden involuntary movements. I believe medically they're called myoclonic jerks, you know. People wave back at you, man. I am not going to be able to drive. About the only thing I could think to do is ask what's her name if she would drive, and she said she would, and that's what happened. Jean drove, and I twitched. <laughs> and we got up there, and this guy sat us down, and, and I mean, I'm, I've been on the street for some years. I'm, I'm, I've never been dumb. I can read people very well. I don't know me very well, but I can sure read you. And I knew this guy on first glance. This is one of those nine to five guys who went to the bar on sunset at 5.30 and had nine martinis. He's just not me. He's not my style. I, we have nothing in common. And he sat me down and started telling me his story. And in 10 minutes, it was clear to me that that guy knew what it felt like to be me at 3 a.m. And I thought nobody knew that. It was my job in life to keep you from finding out that I was perfectly willing to share my opinions with you, but I didn't want you to see my tears. And he already knew. So that got my attention. He, he convinced me to stay there that night. And Gene agreed quick, grabbed the keys and ran. You know. and, and they, you know, it was a whole different thing. They were telling me that I had a disease and, and they put a hospital gown on me and they ushered me to this nice room and it drapes on it. And, and, and the night before I'd been calling, they were calling me pond scum and, and I was sleeping on the floor around the vomit, you know, and, and so it was much better. And then they left and I noticed that there was no doorknob on my side. <laughs> I don't care how nice your drapes are, that's jail. You know? And that's how that is. And we didn't have any money, and so they, they moved me out to a 12-step house the next day, and at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, I was standing underneath a palm tree in Oxnard, California, and I had just successfully completed the AA program. <laughs> yeah, no, he explained how it worked. He said, you do it one day at a time. And I had just done that by the clock, 24 hours. I had nothing, no wine, no beer, no mescaline, no acid, psilocybin, second all, two and all, nothing at all for 24 hours. And I did not like it. <laughs> and I decided to resign from your organization. And one of the things I remembered, I promised that fool I'd read the book Alcoholics Anonymous before I took another drink, so I grabbed the book and tried to rush right through it. And one of the many symptoms of my disease that had developed by then is that I had become an intellectual, which I now define as someone who has been educated beyond his capacity. But in those days, it was a very serious matter to me. It was a desperate effort on my part to gain some control. If I could understand the nature of the human psyche or the universe, maybe I could gain some control that I had been out of control since I was 16 years old. Also, it was an effort on my part to impress you because I have been filled with self-loathing my entire life. And the only relief I ever got from that is if I could impress you. And it only lasted as long as you were impressed. And so for those reasons, I was an intellectual. Anyway, I grabbed the book and I immediately saw that it did not meet my literary standards. <laughs> A book that plain-spoken and I thought simple-minded could hardly be of use to somebody of my complexity, don't you know? I mean, I found stuff in there I could ridicule. It suggested that I should substitute for my drinking. Now, I've given you a little taste of my drinking. I should substitute for my drinking the fellowship. Oh, yeah, that's going to work. 
let's start with the fact that I don't like people, okay? I didn't even like the word fellowship. It sounded to me like a Baptist softball team. I don't want to be part of your fellowship. Thanks very much. And I could see through that book's feeble efforts to hide its real intent behind euphemisms like higher power. That book was trying to cram God down my throat. And I did not believe in God. And I didn't think you should either. One of my little entertainments in those days was to go to bars named Molly Malone's or Barney's Beanery and find some big Irish Catholic and get him into a discussion. I said, you believe in God? He said, oh yeah. I said, a loving, just, and merciful God, right? He said, right. I said, yeah. What about malformed children and disease and war and poverty and bigotry and death? Where's your loving God? And usually about then, they would beat me up to show me there was a power greater than myself. <laughs> and that was the attitude with which I read that book. And in spite of my attitude, when I got to page 21 for the first time in my life, it got clear to me what was the matter with me. And I really had been trying. I had been willing to be diagnosed a variety of things. Paranoid schizophrenic, manic depressive, psychopath, sociopath, artist any of those <laughs> diagnoses. <laughs> Page 21 described what it called the real alcoholic. It said they are seldom mildly intoxicated, usually more or less insanely drunk. It said they do absurd, tragic, incredible things. It says they are disgusting, even dangerously antisocial. It talks about the Jekyll and Hyde personality and our lousy timing. All in one paragraph. And by the time I finished that paragraph, it was clear to me that I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I really am. I am an alcoholic. That's exactly the way I've been living my life since I was 16 years old. And uh, so I became a little more teachable right then. And uh, I don't know what the selection process is. See, I don't know how people get to stay sober. I've been sober now, you know, coming up on 26 years. So I get calls from people saying, how do I stop? How do I quit? And I have no answer for that. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I simply don't know how it's done. The most profound thing I've ever heard said about it, Sandy Beach says. He says, in order to stop drinking, you have to stop drinking. And, and that's all I know. But I know lots of people who wanted it more than me, who tried harder than me, who were better people than me, and who died of the disease. And I buried them, you know? I don't know. But somehow, some of us are allowed the gift of not drinking. And, and that started happening to me. I wasn't drinking a day at a time, a day at a time. And, I, and the relief was so incredible that I, I became willing to try and do the stuff you guys do. And, and so I found out you're supposed to get a sponsor. So I got a sponsor. And then I discovered that he did not have enough education to deal with somebody in my complexity. <laughs> I mean, this guy was a high school dropout. I don't know, it just wasn't going to work. But, I, I liked him and I trusted him and I, and I got enough confidence in him to tell him the truth. I told him that I, that I, you know, I was an atheist and I didn't, couldn't even work the second step. And he said, well, God comes to me through other people. Go to the meetings and search for God. Oh, yeah, that's what I'll do. <laughs> but I didn't want to drink and so I said I would do what he told me to do no matter what it was. And so I went to meetings and searched for God. I didn't find him, but I looked. I listened to the speakers with great intensity in the hopes that one of them would unlock that mystery for me. None of them did, but 
And it seemed to me, and I realize this is not just mistaken, but it did seem to me that every speaker I heard during that period had about a third grade education, and they all got sober in Tyler, Texas, and they were dispensing folk wisdom. This one guy got up and said, if you do not believe in a power which is greater than yourself, then jump up and stay there. <laughs> what the hell is that? I didn't think that was funny. I'm sitting out there trying to find God, and this guy is telling me that gravity will restore me to sanity. You know, I don't see how that's going to work. About the only thing I really could hold on to is something else Fred had said, and that is no matter what. He said, no matter what, don't use a drink, no matter what. And I made a list of no matter what. If those four kids never do speak to me again, I will not use a drink, no matter what. If I never am able to work again, I hadn't made any money in three years. If, if I never am able to work again, I will not use a drink, no matter what. If my wife of 17 years goes through with her plan to divorce me, I will not use, I will not drink. If she stays, I will not use, I will not drink, no matter what. If my mind is never restored to me, I will not use a drink. And I mean, my hallucinations did not disappear the day I got sober. I was sitting next to Fred on a hot August night one time, and a huge black bug came flying right at me and then darted between my sponsor and me, and we ended up looking at each other, and I didn't say anything. The first thing that was said, Fred said, he said, it was really there, Jack. <laughs> I'd be damned if I'd ask him, you know, I was pleased to hear it, but I, I wasn't going to ask the man. And when I was 30 days clean and sober, I had a spiritual experience. It consisted of being 30 days clean and sober, see, because I can't do that. There's no way that I can do that. I cannot hold my breath for 30 days, and I can't stop drinking for 30 days. And I, and I here it was. It was... It was and that is a spiritual experience precisely as it is described in that most profound of books, Alcoholics Anonymous, in a rather obscure section of our book called Appendix 2, where it says, we tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which we presently came to identify with our own conception of a power greater than ourselves. Some of our religious-minded members call that God-conscious. And I had tapped an unsuspected inner resource that made it possible for me to stay sober an incredible length of time, 30 days in a row. And I went to Fred and I told him, I think I'm beginning to work the second step. And he then, then, not before that, he was polite, he answered my calls, but he didn't take a serious interest until he saw that I was going to be allowed the gift of staying sober. Then he began to work the steps with me because if you happen to be new, or if you haven't, this hasn't occurred to you let, yet, let me clear it up. Alcoholics Anonymous is not about not drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous is about living sober. It's very easy to figure out. We don't take the steps in order to stop drinking. We stop drinking, and then it becomes necessary to take the steps. And Fred began to walk me through the steps, and uh, he had a very irritating way of doing it. Uh, this high school dropout liked to define the words for me. God, I hated that. He said, you're going to have to give up resentment. I said, okay, I'll do that. He said, well, now let me tell you what the word means. I said, I know what the word means. And he said, as if I hadn't said anything. He said, all right, now, resentment is refeeling old injury. Well, I'd never quite thought of it like that. And, uh, and uh, so I had to start trying to not re-experience old injury.
And he also told me, he said, you have to be rigorously honest. I said, okay, I'll do that. He said, let me tell you what the word means. All right, what does it mean? He said, it's when your mind, your mouth, and your behavior coincide. Oh, I never quite thought of it like that. My mind, my mouth, and my body had rarely been in the same room. He, he said, I'll give you an example. You're married. Well, I hadn't thought of it like that either. She was married. You know, she said, you're, he said, you're married, and if you're going to be rigorously honest, you have to be faithful. I said, why? He said, well, you're not being faithful to the woman. You're being faithful to the promise you made. I said, look, the truth is, I have been unfaithful for the entire 17 years, to the best of my ability, you understand? He said, that's not how it works. I said, Fred, I'm not sure I love her. And he said, no, you don't. We teach that here. You do loving things where you are, and you will learn how to love. And in your case, we will begin with politeness. If she cooks, you say thank you. Can you handle that? And I said, okay. And he said, and you have to be faithful. And I said, I would. And three years later, I called him to complain. I said, okay, I'm doing what you tell me, and I must admit I'm still here, but she still does not trust me. And he said, well, let's figure out how long it took you to teach her not to trust you. <laughs> uh, we figured it was 17 years. He said, fine. When you get 17 years clean and sober and faithful, then the score will be even. I said, thanks a lot. And Fred died when I was 15 and a half years sober. I always say of exhaustion. <laughs> so he wasn't there to see it. But when I got 17 years clean and sober and faithful, my wife gave me a little medallion that I wear on my neck. It says 17, even. <laughs> yeah. And we've been to, uh, May 4th, we have our 41st wedding anniversary. We've been together. We've been, we've been together for 43 years, and we've been asked occasionally, we do a, a, a couple seminar in, in sometimes and people say how did you manage to stay together so long I say fear of change <laughs> and we have oh it's great we have six grandchildren and, uh, and uh, the oldest is 23 and the youngest is six which means that none of my grandchildren have ever seen me drink they think an alcoholic is somebody that goes to meetings <laughs> you go to a meeting grandpa oh yeah oh yeah recently my eight-year-old called me and she said, I'm in third grade now and I'm going to write my first essay. And I said, great, what's the title? She said, well, it's called My Special Friend, Grandpa. You know, her mother kicked me out of my house. But things have changed and life is different. It's an amazing I mean, I, I mentioned the internet. I've been, I've been involved in the internet lately, and I've been AA stuff, and, and uh, we have a little newsletter, and I, I found this story, and it described my ego so completely that I just want to get it to you. Uh, it's about this captain on a ship, and uh, he noticed a light at night coming toward him, so he had him signal, change your course 10 degrees south, and the signal comes back, says, change your course 10 degrees north, and he signaled back and says, I am a captain, change your course. And the 
signal came back and said, I'm a seaman second class, change your course. He said, I am on a battleship, change your course. And the signal came back, I'm on a lighthouse. <laughs> my ego has been doing that kind of thing to me all my life. You know, it just arrogantly drive through. Uh, my, one of my, one of my uh, favorite musicians of all time is John Coltrane, and he was a great improviser, and he was... Uh, a heroin addict and I identify with his obsessiveness and stuff and he developed a problem uh, he couldn't get out of an improvisation and he'd, he'd do a solo he did a solo at the Newport Beach Jazz Festival in 1958 that lasted for 45 minutes I mean it was a great solo but it was 45 minutes and so he was in Miles Davis band he went to Miles and said you know explain to him that get into the harmonics and it gets so involved I just can't get out what do you think I should do and Miles gave him what I consider the prototypical AA direction. It was clear, clean, precise, and it solved the problem. He said, take the horn out your mouth. <laughs> I, I told that recently, and some guy told me another thing Miles said, which I thought was also very kind of program-oriented. He told the people in his band, when you got nothing to do, do nothing. <laughs> Yeah, they like that too. So, so life got different for us and better and better and better and it doesn't get any better. God has been awfully good to us. And, and uh, Fred told me God comes to us through other people and I thought that was ridiculous. And uh, I find out that's the truth and I, this little piece was given to me so I'll give it to you. I seek the light. God is not out there trying to get in. God is in here trying to get out. I am a spirit living in this skin. I will choose faith rather than doubt. And yet, and yet sometimes it isn't at all clear. Why must pain be disappointment, a child betrayed? Why must light be so distant and rage so near? Why must each one, adult and child, you and I always be afraid, but I diligently seek the light in you, the smile from your last bed, the tenderness that often accompanies age, an unasked kindness, a fatherly hand on a tousled head. Light reflects, it pushes back the dark, and somehow opens up the cage. Thank you.